Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. Also invite you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or tune in with Mondays being the day the episodes are released under the world. Or go to nationalreview.com, click on podcasts and find all of our episodes there, including uh, other National Review podcasts as well. Ask you to listen, enjoy, share, share, and leave reviews as well. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. And my tag team partner standing by, as always, is Jeff Blair. Jeff! Uh, hey, how are you? I, um, I'll tell you this, I... I certainly felt better. I, I spent the entire morning shrieking vaguely veiled Old Testament allegories into a microphone, and uh, my voice is just shot all to hell at this point. <clears throat> it kind of sounds like you're gaining weight, too. Which uh, Yeah, yeah, well, up. that's also true. Lost a lot of hair. Um, <laughs> it seems to be the way it goes. You can find Jeff on Twitter, at EsotericCD. And our guest today... He is a political columnist for USA Today and the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, a periodic contributor to both National Review and the Weekly Standard, also a weekly uh, or a regular guest on Will's Band of the Week, a weekly podcast about current independent and alternative albums. You can find him on Twitter at Schneider underscore CM. He's Christian Schneider. Christian, thank you for joining us here on Political Beats. Hey, thanks so, so much for having me. Literally, like, the only reason I actually leave my house is in the event somebody might actually ask me what I'm listening to. So this is uh, <laughs> quite the honor. Uh, and, and we will get to your band in just one second. But first, we'd like to tell the people a little bit about who you are, Christian Schneider, and how you got involved in the political uh, environment. Well, for the purposes of this podcast, I'd like to be referred to by my uh, chosen name, which is Romancio Sir Tasty Maxibillion, uh, <laughs> which is which is the name uh, a Wisconsin inmate actually tried to uh, change his name to unsuccessfully. But since wow. uh, this is going to be a, a podcast about uh, changing names and, and things like that, I, I thought I'd, I'd throw that out there. It, well, you know, after the show breaks up, you can actually rebrand yourself as uh, Schneider Chris. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, my, I'm uh, with uh, USA Today. I started out, uh, I grew up in the in the Washington, D.C. area in the uh, the northern Virginia suburbs. Um, ended up in gra at grad school in, at uh, Marquette University, which is the Sorbonne of southeast Wisconsin, uh, and worked in the Wisconsin legislature for almost a decade, writing laws and uh, doing political things and such like that. Um, left to write for a right-wing think tank. Then uh, the whole uh, Scott Walker Union uh, imbroglio happened here in Wisconsin. I got a call from uh, Rich Lowry at National Review, asked me to if I would write some things for him. Uh, did that and ended up writing for National Review for a couple of years. And uh, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel said, hey, there's a guy here in the state who is can write about conservative politics. And they hired me on. Uh, the Journal Sentinel, a few years later, was bought by Gannett, that owns USA Today. And they saw me and had the poor judgment to give me a weekly column <laughs> in uh, USA Today. So uh, that is my my path to stardom, if if you will. And just at the right time, you know, Wisconsin and conservative politics during the time that you've covered it has been uh, kind of the hotbed of, of activity. 
There's always something going on in Wisconsin. That's true. Yeah. All right. So uh, for enough about politics. We don't do that. We talk about music here on the program on Political Beats. And we turn to Christian Schneider for uh, the band this week. It's a uh, uh, really when you get down to it, really one of the more influential bands on, on 90s rock and, 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 and the grunge uh, movement of the 90s, specifically on some of those bands that broke through first, like Nirvana. Uh, out of Boston, although they didn't spend a ton of time there before moving out to L.A., a couple of albums, a long hiatus, and then a reunion, which might be just a cash grab. I don't want to cast aspersions on them. But uh, four members of this band, they are Pixies. And just like Talking Heads last week, if I if I know this correctly, it is just Pixies. It's not the Pixies officially. But it is the band that Christian Schneider has chosen for this week's episode of Political Beats. And we turn the floor over to Christian once again to tell us why you love this band, how you kind of got into them, and why anybody else out there should care about Pixies. <laughs> now, wait, I thought we were doing the Gnarls Barkley podcast. Is that not? Because I spent, you know, hours uh, preparing That's for that. been the rescheduled. Crazy. Sorry. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Our wires got crossed here. Uh-oh. <laughs> no, uh, so if you've read anything uh, written by Pat Oswalt, uh, you will understand kind of my upbringing in, in music where both he and I were kind of almost the same age and we grew up in the Northern Virginia area kind of at the same time. Uh, and he expresses his frustration that there was this incredible music scene just a few miles away going on in D.C. And yet you're a suburban kid out there and not really knowing what's going on, um, you know, buying records at Tower Records and, and places like that. Mm hmm. And Dave Grohl, of course, was living there at the same time. And I'm just name dropping these people because we're obviously the same people, <laughs> um, had similar careers. Um, so, you know, just being a, a regular suburban kid, I had a, a friend named Scott who was kind of my music Sherpa. He was kind of into, uh, you know, all the all the cool music, all the al alternative music. He was more into um, Chicago music, though. He's really into kind of wax tracks, mm -hmm. um, ministry, skinny puppy, KMFDM, all that kind of stuff. And he was pushing me towards that. And he, he, at some point, he even tried to get me to listen to Einsterzen's Norbrotten, <laughs> which is literally <laughs> dudes like banging on shopping carts with spoons. I uh, like them a lot, actually. You do? Not well, for everyone, for sure. Congrats. Yeah, they're, they're, they're an acquired taste. Um, them, so, and, them, and, them and Laybach, I would not recommend to the uh, average music <laughs> listener. Uh, so at this point, I was past my Zeppelin phase, uh, kind of firmly in my REM phase, but I had started listening to some some harder type of stuff. Um, I, I really liked Living Color, for instance. Um, I liked Nine Inch Nails, things like that. Um, but so I was at my friend Scott's house one day and uh, went to go talk to his sister, Karen, who was a year younger, and walked into her room and she had Pixies posters all over her all over her walls. This was like 1989. Uh, I was 16, maybe almost 17. Uh, and she explained to me this, this band called the Pixies, uh, told me they were from Boston. Um, I, I actually at that point already liked uh, Throwing Muses, who I think their album Hunk Papa had just come out, which to this day is still one of my favorite albums. And so the fact that the Pixies were from Boston uh, was appealing to me. Like, hey, there's a scene here that uh, even though as it turns out, neither of those two bands actually sound like anything that was going on in Boston at the time. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Doolittle had, had just come out. Yeah. 
Like any red-blooded American male who just met a girl with black lipstick and black fingernail polish, uh, I went to the store and I, you know, this is the days where you actually had to go to a store and purchase music. (laughs) (laughs) I went and I bought them and uh, I really loved them immediately. Um, It's kind of traumatic to walk into a a store and buy three CDs from one band. I have this aversion (laughs) to actually talking to people that work in record stores because they might actually ask me like what I think of the band and stuff. And I, I just, I have some phobia about, about answering questions like that. Um, so I went and I bought them, listened to them and you know, it, it might sound kind of hokey, but to me, just the sound of the Pixies kind of sounded like my brain <laughs> at age 17. Um, my favorite book is actually uh, Tom Wolfe's electric Kool-Aid acid test. And one of the things that I, that I like most about the book is, you know, it's about, LSD and Ken Kesey and things like that, where he actually writes the book in a, such a way that it almost kind of gives you a feeling of what it's like to be on LSD or kind of be in that in that scene. And to me, Pixie's music kind of sounds like like my brain sounded. It's there's so many disparate things going on. There's the foreboding. There's uh, you know Black Francis's screaming. There's uh, you know Kim Deal's almost you know childlike uh, side. Uh, lyrics. There's you know surf guitar, but then there's crunch. There's the loud, quiet, loud dynamic. So you have the the all of these almost competing types of things all within a song. But the song's you know it's moving on without you, whether you're on it or not, and it's just going ahead. And you know that's kind of how I felt at the time. Like there's so much stuff in my brain, but you know you just got to keep moving on, uh, keep keep going day to day. And so I really liked it, aside from the fact that, you know, it's just great music. It's just, you know, it's it's catchy and it's, uh, you know, really what I was into. So uh, for all those reasons, uh, you know, I really liked the band and I followed them on through college and uh, up until up until when they broke up, uh, broke up. You know, spoiler alert, they actually broke up at, at some point point, <laughs> uh, and right before uh, they could have actually made it big. So, uh, so yeah, so that's my, uh, my ex- explanation. So for me, I, you know, Christian, you said you were born uh, uh, in the D.C. area, uh, what did you say, in the, in the 70s? That's about when Patton Oswalt was born. He was born in like 69. So you're uh, like... Born in 73. So I was 70- like 16 in 1989 when Doolittle came out. Got it, got it. So I was born in the same area, in the Maryland side, uh, at about 1980. Um, same idea that there was like a pretty interesting DC scene, but good luck ever getting there when you're 16 years old. I had to yeah. figure out ways to bribe people to get into the 930 Club as an underage right. kid. Um, <laughs> I believe I actually went to the 930 Club and I borrowed a friend's ID that said I was 18 years old. I think I was like <laughs> to be 16. Exactly. I, I just slipped the bouncer $40. And, you know, same, same effect, basically. But yeah, I had to do that to go see like Radiohead uh, at the time when I was uh, 16 years old. But I had, a, I, I had a different experience with the Pixies. 
uh, I came to them, of course, long after they had broken up. I came to them in college. And at first, this is telling, the first time I bought their albums, I bought uh, Surferoso and Doolittle at the same time. Because, of course, that's what everybody told you you're supposed to do. These are two most important albums. I bought them, and I did not like them. I listened to them. They did not at all click with me. I didn't invest a huge amount of time with them, but I listened to them maybe once, probably half attentively, and then I set them aside and I went on to explore all the other music that I was just immersing myself in uh, at that era. So we're talking about 1998, 2000 to 2003. It was only several years later, around 2003, something like that that I returned to them and I had one of those great moments that you have with bands where you've had it sitting there in your collection all along and you didn't think you liked it you put it on one day because you thought to yourself well this is supposed to be great let's give it another shot and then all of a sudden you know the right gear turns the right tumbler clicks and it all snaps perfectly into place for you. And now maybe it's because of the you know, journey that I had taken in the meantime. I'd become a huge fan of bands like Pavement, for example, Radiohead, a lot of the other more dissonant art rock groups of the uh, early 80s and uh, late 70s. So I had a, maybe a context for Pixies that I had not previously had. I was never a big Nirvana fan, ironically enough. I heard uh, Surferosa again. I put it on, and then suddenly music that had made no sense to me at all the first time I had listened to it. You know, this guy shrieking at the top of his lungs in, in a voice that seemed like it could peel, you know, aluminum off walls uh, suddenly made sense to me. The, the lyrical conceits made sense to me in a way that they had never made any kind of sense to me before. And so I remember listening that second go around with Surferosa and realizing that, you know what? This, this sounds like. You know, music that was made by a guy who has been staying up late at night, smoking an awful lot of marijuana and reading the Old Testament and also <laughs> watching David Lynch films. And then as it turns out, I was exactly right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you were right. And I found out later that they actually did a cover of that David Lynch song from Eraserhead, and I laughed at myself. I felt so proud of myself. I was like, man, Jeff, you are a rock critic. You can figure <laughs> this out by listening to it. Um, but that's what grabbed me. It was listening to a song like Break My Body, which is something that I had never really heard anyone do before. Even in 2003, I still think songs like that – have not properly been imitated. You listen to this song, and it's, it's a very, very short blast of sound. Break my body, hold my bones, hold my bones. There's this very violent and disturbing imagery that somehow coalesces into this very powerful and desperate-sounding chorus, and I'm still not entirely sure what the rational meaning of that song is, but what it nevertheless does is it conjures all these images in my head that are alternately disturbing and interesting and powerful and certainly seem rooted in very kind of very deep, deep traditions and mythologies that have been jumbled up into Black Francis's head and then, then spit out onto this canvas of the Pixies' music. Uh, and I was I was hooked at that point.
and then I went back and I bought Come On Pilgrims, even more impressed. Revisited Doolittle. Well, that certainly turned out well. And then I got into the remainder of their career, the last two albums. They were a very short discography. Bossa Nova and Trompe Le Monde, and of course, we'll argue about this, but I have now come to believe, and I even mentioned this last week when we were talking about Talking Heads, that their career arc as a band is surprisingly disappointing for me in that all of their greatest music came out almost immediately. And then by 1989, I feel they were a spent force creatively. I don't know why that is. I don't know if it has to do with band dynamics. I don't know if that is to do with the fact that Black Francis maybe just had a certain amount of great music and great song ideas within him. But it seems like they had said everything that they were creatively going to say by Doolittle. Same way that Talking Heads seemed to have creatively become something of a spent force after Remain in Light, despite the fact that they themselves extended their lifespan of their band for almost an entire decade afterwards. So I find that there are some pretty great songs on those last two albums and, you know, hiding in the crevices of their B-sides and BBC sessions and whatnot. But I divide them so sharply between the almost bioluminescent brilliance of their first three releases, which I think are as good as any music in retrospect that was ever put out between you know the late 80s and early 90s period, and then everything that came afterwards, which feels like a curious asterisk, of course, including the reunion albums that they've done in the 2000s. And I know that you want to vehemently disagree with me about that, so I'm really looking forward to this. But, uh, you know, that, of course, you know, I guess that takes us, unless, Scott, I don't want to step on you if you have any thoughts (laughs) about the Pixies in general. Yeah, I wanted to mention just, you know, we're going to have three different people coming from three different uh, uh, introductions to the band, I guess, because I came at them almost entirely backwards because uh, my first introductions to them were probably in four ways. One was there was a Pixies tribute album called Where Is My Mind? And Weezer did a cover of Valoria, which Frank Black loves. And um, and that, that that was one of the first Pixies songs I heard. And I, I saw, of course, um, uh, Fight Club, which closes with Where Is My, Where Mind? Is My Mind? And um, on the, uh, the video game Rock Band... One of my favorite songs to play was Wave of Mutilation, uh, but I don't think I had heard it previous to playing it. And then actually, I'm pretty sure I heard a Frank Black solo album before I heard uh, an entire album from Pixies before getting into it. Oh, that's that. interesting. Yeah. Which one? Well, I play, you know, it was because I worked at a radio station, so you get all these albums come in and you're asked to review them and, uh, you know, which songs do you want to put on the air? It was his second, his second solo album, and I can't remember the name of it. Uh, Not Teenager of the Year, is it? No. No, no, it was. I uh, believe. Now you're gonna make me look it up. <laughs> I think Frank Black was the first one, and then Teenager of the Year was the second. I, I think we should also stipulate, for the purposes of this podcast, that Frank Black, Black Francis, right. or Charles Thompson, Charles Thompson the Fourth, yes, has, <laughs> has three names. Uh, and I literally wrestled with this about what I was going to call him throughout the the podcast. I think I I, I probably <laughs> have already called him two, at least two different things. I'm go- I'm going with Chuck. <laughs> Chaz, yeah. Chaz, 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 Chaz. It, it was the uh, it was the fifth album by the Pistolero was the first uh, Frank Black album that I heard. So okay. uh, that's that's my introduction. Then it was sort of working backwards from there. 
uh, is where I came into the band. But I, I want, you know, Christian actually did, did the legwork on this uh, <laughs> to, to find the literal beginning of the band. And so I know he, he tweeted it out once. He'll probably do it again, I hope, as we release the, uh, the podcast. But Christian can take some of, the, some of the origins quickly of how this band came together. Yeah, so uh, Charles Thompson, Chazzy T, was uh, a uh, college student at UMass Amherst in in Boston, um, and he was a sweet mate, I believe, with uh, uh, Joy Santiago, who uh, also ended up in the band. He left for Puerto Rico uh, for a study abroad type of thing so he could learn Spanish. Uh, while he was there, he was writing uh, Santiago letters saying, ah, just go ahead and quit college. Uh, it's not for me. Let's just go ahead and start a band. And uh, being the good friend that he was, he did. He uh, Charles Thompson came back. They formed a band. They put a now famous uh, advertisement in the Boston Phoenix uh, for a bass player. And it's a, a famous one uh, ad that says essentially uh, have to be into Husker Du and Peter Paul and Mary. <laughs> and uh, essentially you have to be unprofessional and so i thought to myself well this is kind of like the constitution of modern rock music <laughs> or independent rock music so i went online and i found uh the boston phoenix online they have google has archives of all of these so i started scrolling through one by one just reading all, all the personal ads uh trying to pinpoint when exactly this ad happened and it's kind of interesting because Kim Deal, who I don't think we've even mentioned yet, uh, who would join the band eventually, had said she moved to Boston from Dayton, Ohio. Uh, she married somebody from Boston, a guy named John Murphy, who was like a computer technician back in 1984. Uh, he came to Dayton. They got married. He brought her back to Boston with him. Uh, and so she says she moved to Boston in January of 1985. And within a couple of weeks, she was in the band. So I went and I started looking in January 1985 and couldn't find anything, <laughs> just bleary-eyed scrolling through through this stuff. And it turns out it was March of 1986 that she actually answered the ad. So she is kind of a uh, uh, not a good uh, narrator at this point. <laughs> in her not career. reliable, yeah. Yeah, she's not a reliable narrator, and we'll explain why uh, in a bit. So I finally found it, and uh, yeah, it's it's almost like uh, going to the, to the National Archives and looking at uh, at the Constitution. Um, <laughs> it's just kind of a, a magic to it, just saying, "Hey, this is this is kind of where it all started." And you know, we'll we'll talk about uh, the the influence of the band, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty impressive. I mean, just to also cover the other two bases here, you, you know, you have, you have uh, Jazz T, uh, Charles Thompson the Fourth, <laughs> aka Black Francis, uh, is of course the, the rhythm guitarist, lead songwriter, lead singer, and then Kim Deal joins as bassist. She is also a frustrated songwriter. She writes a couple songs for the band, but not nearly as many as she would have liked to, which of course ends up creating a lot of friction later on. She plays bass, uh, but then also they have, uh, I think, they're probably their most underrated weapon is their guitarist. That's uh, the one who was Joey Santiago. That was the uh, you know Black Francis's friend from UMass Amherst. And then finally, they get a drummer named David Lovering, who I think is good. Uh, doesn't particularly stand out to me, I, but I would never say to myself, boy, I, I wish they had a better drummer. What I do so sometimes find myself 
saying on some of the later Pixies albums is that, boy, I wish they had uh, done a better job of miking those drum yes. sounds and, and making them sound a little less too generically 90s for my tastes. But you have a pretty formidable instrumental ensemble that gets off the ground as early as 1987. And this is the part that always fascinated me when I went back and I started sort of methodically exploring uh, Pixies. I didn't just get the albums. I got all the bootlegs, as we talked about on our pre-show, you know, uh, all of the various demos that are out there. Lots and lots of sort of black market stuff freely circulates from Pixies. Some of them have been released, you know, on, on subsequent reissues and things like that. Uh, but there's a lot of high-quality material from their prehistory, and it shows you how a lot of these songs, a lot of the songs that would go on to occupy some of the most beloved parts of their first three albums were really there in their core concept as early as 1986 and 1987. And what happens, of course, is they meet a guy, a random dude uh, by the name of Gary Smith, who I've never heard of before. I think they met him through their association with Throwing Muses, um, who said, you guys are great, and I want to make you famous. I want you to come to my studio and record a demo with me. And they went in and they took all the songs that they had, all of the songs that Black Francis had been stocking up for the past two years, and they recorded something that they ended up calling The Purple Tape. I guess it's because the cassette tape that they recorded on ended up looking purple. And what they did after that is they shot the demo around and when 4AD, the uh, indie record label that loved them, uh, decided to give them a chance, uh, thought to themselves, well, rather than having you guys re-record this material, this material is is really good as it is. Let's just give it a a nice little subtle remix and we're going to release it as it stands. What they did is they called fewer than half of the songs from that 17-track demo for their first EP. That first EP is called Come On Pilgrim. It was released in 1987. And I will lay my cards out on the table that I think this is the greatest. This is a pretty small, a narrow category to win an award in. But I will say this is the greatest debut EP of all time. And I'm thinking of things like uh, EPs that I truly love, like uh, Chronic Town by R.E.M., in that category when I say this. There are a lot of debut EPs. Pavement had three EPs before they recorded an album. Come On Pilgrim is better, more complete, and a more perfect statement of everything the Pixies were supposed to be about and ever wanted to be about than any other debut EP ever released by a band. Tell me I'm wrong, and I will tell you why you're a fool. I cannot say that you were wrong. (laughs) Um, So... You mentioned Throwing Muses before, and you really can't talk about the Pixies without mentioning Throwing Muses because essentially they had this guy, Gary Smith. Uh, They took the Throwing Muses uh, um, recording space, they took their manager, and they took their uh, record company, all of those through an association with with Throwing Muses. Um, There was kind of a a Boston, you know, 
group of, of bands out there. There was like the Del Fuegos were, were playing, um, Lemonheads were still coming up, O Positive, Amy Mann, Until Tuesday were, were around. Um, but the thing is, they were never really kind of part of that scene. There, there are kind of a, the Boston scene in the same way that, you know, Donald Trump is a Republican. And like almost <laughs> there was a quote unquote Boston sound. And, um, one of their, one of their managers said none of those guys throwing muses or the Pixies really had it. Um, but yeah, so they signed with a, a, a British record label. And as you said, they, they cut the, the songs in half. Uh, there's a guy named Ivo, uh, Watts Russell. Uh, or is it Russell Watts? Uh, Watts Russell. Um, Pretentious sounding. Yes. yes. And he, he really kind of shepherded their career in those early years. And there are still people who, who listen to the Purple Tape and say, well, they definitely should have keep, kept it all together. There's 17 of the greatest songs ever. Uh, I think that they actually made a really good decision to split that up because in the songs that they cut out of Come On Pilgrim, those songs were actually able to fill kind of their catalog through the next couple of uh, couple of albums. Mm-hmm. Some of the best songs from their next, you know, three albums were, were from those sessions. Um, one of the interesting things is is that there was there was this year where they sat down, wrote all these songs that kind of filled their first three albums. I mean, uh, one of their managers had said they really didn't write anything new. Until they got to uh, until Doolittle. they got to Bossa Nova. Well, no, Doolittle. I think they really they stuff like Tame and Debaser and Wave of Mutilation, Monkey Gone to Heaven. That that all came out like that was the second round of songwriting that they engaged in. But everything from those first two albums clearly came from that early era. Yeah, and some of the best songs. We'll talk about some of the later albums. Uh, some of the best songs on those later albums were early songs that were written yeah. kind of around around this era. Indeed. Um, but I think it's wise that they split that up. They what they essentially did was they took great songs from that session, cut them in half and they left people wanting more where the challenge for most bands is leaving people wanting some. So I, I just think it was brilliant the way that they did it, and of course it all it all worked out. It's a great way to avoid the sophomore slump. You know, right. again, again, Talking Heads comes up here again for the second time in the show already, in that they had a huge batch of songs for their uh, initial sessions, and they only just chose half of them for Talking Heads '77, and then the other half they put out on more songs about buildings and food, which is their best album in my opinion, and that was all written already as like far back as 1975, but they saved it. They didn't have to go through this this hasty, you know, series of like you know half-assed tunes that you have to throw together in the studio and write things that aren't really well thought through. They had a rock solid base from which to do Surfer Rosa because of what they had left off of Come On Pilgrim. Right, and Come On Pilgrim immediately got great reviews. Everybody loved it. Um, the song Isla de Encantana. 
Encanta, I'm sorry, was uh, picked up and put into the movie Married to the Mob uh, right away. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was it was very well received, and uh, they were able to to move on and get better equipment and better management and everything since because of that album. I mean, we're talking around the songs, though. Let's. I just I, I love this EP so much. Almost every single song on it, except I think maybe Nimrod's Son doesn't do anything for me. But there are eight tracks on this album. Seven of them I consider classics. It opens with Caribou, which is sort of the opening salvo of Pixie's entire career. But there are they. They play in every genre that they were capable of doing, from these weird Spanish skiffly things like vamos, vamos a escucha por la playa, vamos, a, and then you know Isla de Encanta, which of course draw upon uh, Black Francis's experiences as a what was he doing? He's doing like a semester abroad in Puerto Rico or something <laughs> like that. Yep, and. Uh, you know, most people, that's just a time where you get drunk and, uh, you know, you go out and you, 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 you drink, you know, daiquiris on the beach and you don't really do anything of any seriousness. Well, he was just stockpiling all this weird cultural color and putting it into these lyrics that would end up being very cracked and weird when they got refracted through his muse. Uh, but he also has songs that I think are just perfect power rock. I think of a song called The Holiday Song. On Come On Pilgrim, you know, where it says, this ain't no holiday, but it always ends up this way. Here I am with myself. And it has this flaming guitar riff that is so, by the way, well produced. Steve Albini gets all this credit for producing them, you know, in this au natural style for their debut album. But I love the style of production that they get all this. It sounds raw. It sounds incredibly muscular and real. And on Holiday Song, that combines with wonderful pop stylistics as well. There are two other songs that I'd like to talk about. I could talk about everyone, but I will just focus on, I think, one of my favorite songs Pixies ever did. It barely missed making my top five, but it's the funniest song of their entire career. It's called I've Been Tired, which begins, again, this is how you know this band is not like any other band that you're going to hear from this era. You know, Black Francis in this squeaky voice goes one, two, three. She's a real left winger. And he, she tells the story, but she's a real left winger because she's been down south and held peasants in her arms. She said, I could tell you stories that would make you cry. And then it goes, it's, it's obviously a, a, a dialogue at a party where he's obviously bored. He's standing there with his beer in his hand, and there's this woman who's blathering on about her semester abroad in the third world. And he, she says, you know, she tries to change the subject. She says, why don't you tell me about your biggest fears? And this is one of my favorite rock jokes of all time. Uh, <laughs> she said, why don't you tell me one of your biggest fears? And I said, losing my penis to a whore with disease and then she and then she said what and he says oh just kidding losing my life to a whore with disease <laughs> she said please and then all of a sudden it goes into this great chorus with kim deal singing the background vocals i've been tired i've been tired the idea of throwing all these very disparate elements this sort of sing speak monologue into this great very poppy chorus frankly and these wildly powerful guitars and drums that's Pixies right there in one song. Everything that's both weird and almost immediately likable and accessible about them in one tune. When I talked earlier about uh, one of the reasons that as a young person I liked the Pixies, one of them was because of the fact that they just seemed like grown-up music. 
Like <laughs> they were something that, you know, older kids would, would listen to, you know, college kids. And part of that is because it was just so filthy. <laughs> yeah. like you just, you just mentioned the, a line that I had actually written down here uh, from I've been tired. <laughs> it's not exactly, you know, a Disney lyric. You're not going to see that in, uh, in frozen or anything. Um, <laughs> but, but what I love is that I had the same reaction that the girl did. The first time I heard him say that, I was like, what? And then I, and I listened to the fall and I was like, oh, I get it. That's a joke. You just told a joke on a song and it landed. I was very, very impressed with the fact that they stuck a joke in the middle of something that's otherwise very heavy and serious. One, two, three. She's a real left winger because she bent down south and held peasants in her arms. She said, I could tell you stories that could make you cry. What about you? Yeah, there, there was a time when uh, when young people actually wanted to seem like they were older uh, and listen to older people music, like cool college people music, not like, uh, you know, the days where now a lot of older people want to see, seem very, very young. It's uh, it's kind of different in that way. So, <laughs> you, you, wait, you had another song that you wanted to talk, talk oh, about? Oh, it's the, the last song, which I consider this will make my top five, which is the best song on Come On Pilgrim, in my opinion, and it's Levitate Me, which is really one of the only two songs, well, three songs, that really get to that weird biblical obsession mm-hmm. that, that it runs through all of Black Francis's early lyrics. One of the things, we didn't mention this before, but, uh, you know, Francis, you know, he, uh, his parents got separated, he, and then his mom remarried, and his stepdad uh, was apparently very much into uh, Pentecostal Christianity, the Assemblies of God. So he went to, like, religious camp when he was a kid, and this is old-time religion. I don't know how many, how familiar people are with Pentecostal religion, but this is the old-time, very deeply biblical Southern Baptist stuff, which must have been pretty weird up in Boston of all places. Um, but it clearly infuses so many of his lyrics, which end up being about these very weird and disturbing biblical stories, mostly from like Genesis, uh, you know, the book of the Bible that is the most upsetting to modern sensibilities where you know people are regularly sleeping with their fathers and their daughters <laughs> and people are getting their eyes gouged out. And there's all sorts of bloodshed and misery, but also the deep, deep thread and core of the fact that there is a God that is watching you and is paying very close attention to you and you must please him or bad things may happen and good things may also happen. And then it feels like it all is, is given final, final statement on Levitate Me, which doesn't refer to any of that specifically, but he talks about like elevator lady, elevator lady, lady levitate me. And it's half a fusion of that, you know, I want to be ascended to a higher spiritual plane 
but it also feels like he's making one of those David Lynch references to like the lady and the radiator or something like that. And it all climaxes with that chorus. You know, if all in all is true, if all is true, won't you please fawn over me? And then you hear this wonderful gliding chorus. And again, it's a tribute to how you can stick so many esoteric references, doctrines, images into a song that they will glide right over your head and you won't really know because you'll be carried along by the brilliance of the music and the power of the band. But when you sit down and you start listening very closely to what he's saying, it starts scanning in a much different way. Shake it, shake. Shake it. Come on, Pilgrim, you know he loves you. talk about vamos for a minute yeah please uh to me vamos is it's almost like a magic trick like this is this is an incredible song to me just because of the way first of all it's it's kind of like spoken word ver- spanglish you know mixing up lyrics uh in that way but just kind of the way the drums and the bass work like it, to me it's almost something that you would need a computer to do and it's it's a testament i think to how good of a bass player uh kim deal was in that the the bass kind of bounces around, but kind of not with with the beat of the drum. It's like right off the beat of the drum. Mm-hmm. So you have the drum going, and then the bass, and then the drum going, and then the bass, and it just kind of like it kind of you know just spreads out almost like an LCD sound system song would these days. Um, and you almost need a com- computer to do it. So I, I just think it's it's it, it's hard for me to imagine how hard that was first of all to record they actually recorded it uh for surferosa afterwards but uh to me just kind of the effect of of what that does is just kind of enchanting to me and it's uh, it just just missed my top five Christian's right in that the right decision to cut down, you know, from 17 to 8, I think basically the right, you know, the right eight songs were were picked. Some of the ones that were left over would surface on later albums, reworked a bit, and in some cases, bettered. Look, 
Here Comes Your Man from the, uh, the the Purple Tape is just about perfect in that form, but I, I totally understand why it's not on this particular album. It's not quite, doesn't fit with the rest of the theme, even though it's a great pop song, and I'll resurface later on. Um, you know, th- so much of, of, of the Pixies were, were here, right? The squealing, jagged guitars, really interesting guitar leads, those harmonies between uh, Black Francis and, and Kim Deal were just perfect from the, from the get-go, and how important Kim Deal's bass and the way she played was to the to the sound of the band. Uh, Jeff covered my favorite song from the album, which is I've Been Tired. That's, again, Kim Deal's bass on that song is fantastic. The vocal interplay between the two of them is outstanding. It's a funny, funny song, as Jeff uh, had mentioned. I like Vamos uh, a whole lot. Ed is Dead is a nice, bouncy, kind of twisted surf rock song with some odd chords and riffs. You know, eight songs, and basically six or seven are are really classics, really fantastic songs. And the ones that were left off are good, too. We'll hear some of them to come. I don't know if Jeff's right in that it's the best EP debut ever, only because I've never really taken time to rank EP debuts. But that's a project for another day. <laughs> you don't perhaps. have a giant list on your wall? I, no, not at the moment. But, it, you know, I can, I can, I have a list of lists I want to make, and now this one goes on that list. So at some point, we'll, I'll get a clear ruling for you. Okay, so just this takes us, of course, to Pixie's debut album. The EP comes out. It's obviously a big hit, critically. And uh, they turn to a guy who is famous or infamous, depending on how you care to characterize him, in the rock scene named Steve Albini to produce Surfer Rosa, their debut album. Steve Albini is a Chicago-based musician. He used to front Big Black, and then he folded them up, and he's a producer now who has produced everybody. Uh, He produced Nirvana's In Utero, uh, but the reason he produced Nirvana's In Utero is because he produced Pixie's Surfer Rosa, which is the album that made Kurt Cobain want to come to him and say, you got to do our stuff. You got to do our stuff because we love everything that we heard you do on this album. This album is regularly hailed as one of the great debut albums of all time. I am very, very positive about it myself, but I would like to actually give Scott the chance to talk about it first, because I feel like I was just blabbing so much that I crowded <laughs> you out during the last bit. Well, they, uh, this, this, this is my favorite uh, Pixies album, and I, you, you put yourself, you, know, you listen to this for perhaps the first time, and you, you have to understand the, the timing of this. Right, This is 1988, this is Bon Jovi, New Jersey. This is Def Leppard and Hysteria uh, at the top of the charts. This is Poison and Warrant and all of those bands getting played on rock radio. And you listen to this and you think it's out of 1992, perhaps. And no, it's four years previous. I and I, we'll, we'll talk about this, you know, through the episode and certainly toward when we close. But th- this is such a hugely influential album in in how rock music was going to sound in a couple of years. And I, I think Steve Albini's production here is genius. Um, you know, the man himself, uh, debatable. The production here is fantastic from the very first song. I love Bone Machine so much. Yes. The power and the rawness and the primal screams from Black Francis through the song. The drums sound fantastic, heavy and clear. 
Um, I love Black Francis and Kim Deal's, again, the intertwined vocals, Your Bones Got a Little Machine, and the way it introduces the band on their very first album. Drums, then bass, then guitar, then vocals. a tremendous opener to the album and much like Jeff was talking about on the on the last album the uh, kind of the kind of the speak sing narrative style of lyrics is also uh, present on, on bone machine uh, what else uh, River Euphrates is a great song and actually the the, uh, the version that's on the b-sides album which would come out far far later it's also outstanding they did a couple of different versions of River Euphrates, which is fantastic. Uh, Where Is My Mind, which I mentioned I probably first heard uh, in Fight Club, is is this, again, odd song structure about scuba diving and fish chasing you around while you're scuba diving. But what a laid-back vibe it has. And, uh, and, and Kim's ooze toward the end really sell it. This album and the production of it gives you an intimate and informal feeling. You know, there's there's studio conversation that's thrown in. And and the way a bone machine plows right into Break My Body, which is the second track of the album. I love that. Cactus is one of my favorite Pixie songs. Kind of a T-Rex influence to it. And those lyrics, again, man, it's about a guy in prison. You know, bloody, your, uh, bloody your hands on a cactus tree, wipe it out a dress, and send it to me. In a way... Um, a love song, I suppose. And it even <laughs> has that, that kind of loping, uh, almost stalker-esque groove to it. Uh, Cactus is a great song. They redo Vamos on this one. I think it's just as good as the Come On Pilgrim version. But I, I stress here, because I, I, will, I will take some shots later, how perfect I think the Pixies' music and, and, and Black Francis' writing merged with the Steve Albini style of production. I don't think they ever sounded better, louder, rawer than they do on Surfer Rosa. It fits them like a glove. This is a truly great album. Christian? You are correct on all counts. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, Steve Albini, who at very best can be considered to be uh, uh, confrontational, aggressive, perhaps. (laughs) That's Um, at his best. At at his best. Um, But you go back and you and you talk to them about working with him, and they say they they all have good things to say about him. They say you know he's rough, he's hard, but he's going to make you sound as good as good as possible, and he definitely does that here. For me, the standout on the album is uh, gigantic. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Albini, at some point, he wanted an echo, but he didn't want to add the echo in in post production. So he had them go down into a, a, a cement uh, bathroom and and sing gigantic in there, which is a, mostly a Kim Deal uh, song song. And just if there's if there's a musical onomatopoeia, <laughs> a song that sounds exactly like the name of the song, it's gigantic. It's a gigantic <laughs> song, uh, and I just love it so much. There's actually a uh, that song actually would uh, kind of cause problems in the band because it, it was so good and did get so popular. Uh, there, there's a story where the band went to go meet uh, Charles Thompson's uh, hero, Iggy Pop, and he brought a microphone with him and he wanted him to sign it like, Iggy Pop, you're my hero. Can you sign this microphone? And he says, I'm in the Pixies. And Iggy Pop goes, oh, I love that song, Gigantic. <laughs> and he's like oh, I, I don't sing that song <laughs> so it just uh, it crushed him and I think it was uh, it was part of the uh, kind of the split that they would have in the future over you know who got to do vocals and kind of kind of the uh, the jealousy that kind of uh, started within the band but for me uh, that that's the standout um, of, of, of the, the album His teeth as white as snow What a gas it was to see him Walk her every day into a shady place With her lips she said James Eha of uh, Smashing Pumpkins, you know, he said like, you know, Sur- uh, Surfer Rosa is the his favorite album. He says, "quote It sounds like some Southern Gothic novelist or something, but with a <laughs> punk rock edge." And uh, and I and think that, that's that's, a, that's about right. It, it's it's more Cormac McCarthy than anything else, though. <laughs> there, and that, yeah, but I want to let you finish. But that's exactly where I'm going with this. So yeah. No, I, I mean, it, it's funny. Scott brought up uh, T-Rex uh, on the song Cactus. There's actually a mix of the song um, Cactus where uh, the band actually uh, spells out the word Pixies yes. yeah. during the break, uh, just like T-Rex did in one of their songs where they yell T-R-E-X. Uh, and so, you know, you're right on with that. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, as you will hear in uh, in very short order, this is uh, one of my favorite albums of all time. And um uh, you know, was immediately praised. Uh, sent them off uh, to to England on a uh, on a tour uh, where they uh, became hugely popular. It's funny that the Pixies were actually always bigger commercially in England than mm-hmm. they were in the United States yep. throughout their entire career. Surferosa was a big success. Doolittle, Bossa Nova, those all went top ten, top five in in the United Kingdom. Uh, they were lucky if they cracked like the you know anywhere from like fifty to a hundred in the American charts. Smaller country, smaller record sales, different environment for obvious reasons, but. 
there's a long tradition of these bands. Pavement would be another one. Mm-hmm. They got much more sort of commercial play and credit, particularly because of the influence of government radio. The BBC had such a powerful influence. And so people like John Peel loved Pixies. They loved Pavement. And that was a huge boost to them there. They never quite made it America in the same way. But as for Surfer Rosa, holy Christ, what can you say about this <laughs> album? If I'm going to try to offer uh, criticism about this album, the best that I can possibly do is to say that it feels sometimes like two different albums if you break it in half. That the first half, you know, from Bone Machine to Where Is My Mind, although I guess on vinyl Where Is My Mind actually opens sight too. But those first seven songs feel like one band who are making these very self-consciously dark, crazed, powerful, epic songs stacked all on that first half of the record. And I think that's... You could argue that's basically the best sustained run of music Pixies ever did, from Bone Machine to Where Is My Mind. And then the second half of the album, from Cactus to uh, Brick is Red, feels like a very different band, a much lighter and more goofy band, a band that suddenly found a sense of humor. A band that you did know. Tony's theme. Oh, yeah. This is a song about a superhero named Tony. It's called Tony's Theme. I just love that. Every time Kim Deal says that at the start of the song, it's so goofy and fun and unexpectedly light, given the heaviness of you. As you said, it's right after Cactus, where you're like, you yeah. trick your hands into Cactus, wash the blood all over the dresses. And, like, oh, well, that, was, that was Albini's touch, where he he kind of just mic'd the whole studio with you know like 20 mics everywhere and wherever they were standing in the studio they would have these conversations and he would record them right that's where you get these vignettes in the album that kind of break it up oh yeah kim deal was talking about like the school teacher who got fired because he was like he was into field hockey students you know (laughs) (laughs) something like that and then the band didn't know that he was he was recording this stuff and he he just dropped them in and and they're just perfect because i think they actually that's how Kim Deal was when she was on stage. She would go up and she would just chat in between songs, and uh, so I think that that captured kind of the live kind of it the live experience. It mm-hmm. gives it a field recording kind of a feel. Yeah. Um, so, like Surferosa, as I said, you know, in the introduction to the show, it's an album that you might enjoy, you know, on a melodic or sonic musical level, but lyrically, it just makes no sense unless you're already steeped in the Old Testament and David Lynch simultaneously. And I think that there's no better example of that than the spectacular violence of Broken Face, mm. uh, which is an incredibly powerful musical track. It, of, it's uh, one of these songs where you really want to make it as loud as you can in your earphones because even though it's really aggressive and you know violently strong with its guitar approach, 
you feel like you have to punish yourself when you hear it. And then you listen to the lyrics, which are about what incest and mutilation simultaneously. It, it literally is David Lynch meeting the book of Genesis. What's that? The chorus, you know, literally is I've got no lips. I've got no tongue where there were eyes. There's only space. I've got a broken face. And there's, you know, the lyric about like, you know, the, the guy who had incest with his sisters and have daughters. It is deeply upsetting when you analyze it and you ask, why am I being confronted with all this rather outre, you know, transgressive lyrical material? And you think, oh, is he just trying to shock me? Is this Marilyn Manson 0.0? No, it's not. It's because he's incorporating he makes me realize, and I think in the way that I really hadn't thought about before, uh, just how out there a lot of those early biblical stories are. It's like his 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 young assemblies of God affected childhood. You know, they talk about all the ancient Old Testament biblical stories, and he sits there thinking about it, and he thinks to himself, "Man, this is really messed up stuff." <laughs> in a way that you know a lot of people maybe don't do, and then he incorporated it into the music, and he brought the disarming perversity of some of these things into a focus that you otherwise would never think about them. I think the other one in that sense that really affects me powerfully is River Euphrates, which is in one of my five favorite Pixie songs of all time. It's not even close. I love this song. I love this song because I hear echoes of this song in so much other music that has been done by other bands that are favorites of mine. Radiohead, of course, everybody jokes about it on Twitter. The, the running gag is that like I'm on the payroll of Tom York personally. I hear a song as musically and sonically different from River Euphrates as Pyramid Song. This is off of Amnesiac. And I hear him and I think Tom York clearly stole or was inspired at least thematically by river euphrates and if you're familiar with pyramid song what is the song it's he sings jumped in the river what did i see black-eyed angels swim with me it's sort of the river of eternal reincarnation some sort of uh deeply spiritual but also ancient mystical experience that is almost impossible to put directly into words and then what is river euphrates river euphrates is nothing more than an early prefiguring of that same approach now you know the way uh black francis puts it is you know he's stuck here out of gas on the gaza strip but you know driving fast too fast but then he's you're riding the tire down the river euphrates why are we in the river euphrates because it's the tigris and euphrates it's the it's the book of genesis again it's the, the the heart and soul of the bible why is he obsessed with that well i think everything that you need to know about the song can actually be told in those backing vocals by kim deal where it's you know rada 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 is these the harmonics that float around you that almost seem like disembodied ghosts or spirits that are haunting you. You feel like you, you've dived into the well of souls and there are all these strange beings and creatures that are flying around you. And, you know, 
Do you get that from this song the way I do? I can't tell you if you get that song from this the way that I do. But I can tell you that when I hear him sing about Dead Sea make it float, one sip from the salty wine, Dead Sea make you choke, I know for a fact he is singing about these images and these ideas that he was infused with in his childhood that he is now putting back again onto this blank canvas of the band that are almost defying rational comprehension but still evoke such powerful images for somebody like me. I love River Euphrates. This is one of the best things that Pixies ever did. other podcast when we want to offer faint praise to a, to a band we've got kind of this running joke where we'll call it we'll say it was uh, challenging but not confrontational um <laughs> and I, I would say uh pixies especially in surferosa are challenging and confrontational <laughs> i will say they are both political beats uh, presentation of national review at political underscore beats to find us on twitter scott bertram jeff blair and christian schneider He's on Twitter at Schneider underscore CM, political columnist for USA Today and the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And uh, we are talking about Pixies. And that leads us to uh, the follow-up album, released one year later, 1989, and it's uh, Doolittle. A new producer is uh, brought in, a guy who's made frequent appearances on this podcast uh, for various albums he's worked on. That's Gil Norton. So he comes in to produce Doolittle in 1989, and this is a, uh, I guess, a slightly more accessible album, a little cleaner, a little sleeker, doesn't have those hard Albini edges on it. But guys, is this as good as uh, Surfer Rosa, their, their first full-length album? Of course it is, yes. What, do you disagree, Chris? You, um, you disagree Schneider, Chris? <laughs> uh, I, you go ahead and talk about uh, Doolittle all you want. I will. I will follow up. Listen, I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm gonna let most people take their their licks first, but I'll open at least by saying that <laughs> yes, I think Doolittle is indeed as good as Surfer Rosa. I also will say that people often talk. They always talk about how Doolittle is. It's a little more but sweetened. The sound is a little more accessible than uh, the sound of Surfer Rosa. I, I tell them, is like, did you listen to this album? I put on Debaser, these <laughs> shrieking guitars, you know, and it was like aggressive. It was ripping my ears off, and he's screaming about slicing up eyeballs <laughs> and how he wants to be a Debaser, and then it's followed immediately by Tame, which is probably the most off the hook song Pixies ever recorded. Period, you know, with the, with the huffing breaths, like the, <gasps> and then tame, and that's what I was joking about at the beginning of the show, where you like throw your voice out because <laughs> I don't know how on earth he could sing that song on a nightly basis without 
needing to get a voice box installed in his throat. And then it goes right into Wave of Mutilation, which is about a Japanese businessman driving off the pier and committing suicide. This is a really confrontational album. The sound is confrontational. Some of the songs, I agree, are I said, more immediately commercially accessible, but there seems to be absolutely no compromise whatsoever on the lyrical content. And it's also as, as long and as encyclopedic an album as the Pixies ever got. There's 15 songs here. I, I'm not going to say it's all perfect. I think there are maybe like two or three songs here that I rate less than the others. I don't like the uh, Kim Deal collaboration on this one, Silver. I don't think Dead or I Bleed have too much to offer me. I know a lot of people like I Bleed, but I think so much of this album is fantastic and is really kind of the peak of their the peak of their creative career. So uh, I'm just eager again to take all comers on to explain to you why you're fools. Well, I, I already you. I already said I think Surfer Rosa is their best. So yeah, I think this is a half step behind. Perhaps look, it's a it's an excellent album, and, and it's debaser as you mentioned is a tremendous song. Uh, kind of call and response between Kim Deal and Black Francis on the uh, uh, on on the lyrics. And again, the lyrics I, I read this somewhere in a in a review. This is essentially a film recommendation, right? Uh, for a, a surrealist uh, film from 1929, where the uh, where the slicing Luis up Buñuel, yes. same same inspiration as Robbie Robertson on uh, <laughs> the weight of all things. And the Lou is the uh, the name name of the movie, and it, uh, if you haven't seen this, it's actually on YouTube. You can go on and watch it, and it's just an insane. It's it's half written by Salvador Dali, so right. it's kind of this dreamscape type of thing, um, where yes, indeed, somebody gets their eyeball sliced in half. And on his 1976 tour, David Bowie actually used used this film as his opening act. He huh. used to play it, uh, and he would he would when he. He would listen, and when the crowd screamed, he knew, okay, well, then I got 15 minutes till the show starts because that's when the, the eyeball <laughs> slices. So that's, that, that's literally how he timed his shows. Uh, Jeff mentioned dead, and I just want to say when I hear dead, I hear pure white stripes, which, of course, would be far after the fact, but that's absolutely what dead reminds me of. Um, I want to talk a little about Here Comes Your Man, which I mentioned from the from the Purple Tape sessions is already pretty much a pure not a pure pop song, but the, you know, the poppiest thing that they, they've done. I think it's better in its original form. This is still very good. And it sounds simple, but it's not. If you listen closely, there are, I, I think, at least four guitar parts that are going on through this song, and all of them do their jobs. There's that twangy kind of electric uh, riff that, that carries the song. There's uh, deep in the mix this heavy, distorted gu guitar that's in there. There's a strummed acoustic that works its way through. And then there's a cleaner sounding electric that's playing the, these chiming uh, kind of riffs a, a la R.E.M. 
and all of it works very well. It's it, you know it seems like a simple song, but it's not. It, there's a lot of moving pieces to it, and it still works well in this form. Though I do like the original version a little bit better. Uh, I don't like the I don't like this form of it at all. This is one of these songs, by the way, in, in typical inscrutable Black Francis style that apparently is actually about a nuclear holocaust. Right, right. Uh, go figure. Um, you, you have to really delve deep into the lyric sheet to figure that one out. If you can figure it out at all, I only really know it because I've read interviews with him where he explains that that's what it's about. Um, but yeah, the original version of it uh, that was done for the Purple Tape, so basically for the Come On Pilgrim sessions, mm-hmm. I think is far superior. And and at the point you made there is that it didn't fit on on that on those sessions it wouldn't have fit in on come on pilgrim and the truth is to be honest is that it doesn't seem like it would have fit in properly on any of their albums it wouldn't have fit on surfer rosa and it wouldn't have really fit in on doolittle and i think that's why they messed with the arrangement and in my opinion weakened it there's a this particular there's the chord progression in the pre-chorus that goes into the first chorus you have to wait so long so long so long and the chords modulate down to a sustained note which is perfect it's exactly where you want it to go and they remove it from the doolittle version Presumably because it's too satisfying. It's too much of a, <laughs> an, ah, yes, wonderful pop moment uh, that they have to take it away and somehow adulterate it to prove that they're, you know, we're not pop hack sellouts. But I, I do still wish that they had had the courage of their convictions. On the other hand, you know, given the way that someone like Steve Albini, you know, went on to criticize them for Doolittle and say that they were like, what was it? What was the line that there were, uh, you know, four cows that were so easily led along by their nose rings or something <laughs> like that? Uh, you can see why they were reluctant to go into a straight pop mode, even though that was definitely the best play that they had. I also think it's uh, what, very funny that, uh, you know, I think on, on Arsenio Hall, Arsenio Hall offered, hey, well, this is a really great album. I hear there's a lot of buzz. We, we should have the Pixies on. We want them to play Here Comes Your Man. And uh, they refused to do it unless they were allowed to play Tame, <laughs> <laughs> which is possibly my favorite song on Doolittle uh, and a song that is almost impossible to describe except as the perfect embodiment of the, quote, soft loud soft dynamic style that pixies became basically synonymous with uh you know they you know got hips like cinderella you know yeah then you're lying there lock jawed and then i can't do the scream because i would destroy every (laughs) microphone in the studio and but yeah tame and he shrieks like i there's there's really no better 
uh, Banshee Rock Shout of the 1980s than on Tame. It's one of my favorite songs of theirs. Uh, and also because it's just so unapologetically uh, discursive and transgressive it, it's it, it is a song that absolutely makes no excuses for itself it demands you to take it on its own terms and it succeeds when i talked at, at the very beginning about kind of all the the disparate elements melding into into one song that's that's leaving without you whether you're on board or not tame i think is a perfect example of all that it's it's all the things that they all do well that you wouldn't think would work together in a song but uh it's, it's absolutely brilliant um and you were talking about Steve Albini and like what he had to say about the band afterwards. Um, he wrote something for a fanzine where he called uh, the band, or he called uh, Doolittle, I think, a, a quote, a patchwork pinch loaf from a band who at their top dollar are at best are blandly entertaining college rock. Never have I seen four cows more anxious to be led around by their nose rings, except that I got to rewrite their songs with a razor blade. I thought the drum sounded nice. <laughs> so, that's, so that's the thanks that, uh, that he gave. Later on, he would, he would apologize. He said, I shouldn't, shouldn't have written that. Written that. But that's, that's kind of who they were dealing with when they were, when they were making that album. <laughs> uh, and quickly, and then Christian can talk more. The other, you know, Jeff mentioned the soft, loud, soft uh, dynamics. The other song that's an excellent track and, 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 and kind of unfolds that same way as Gouge Away. Right towards the end, the retelling of a Samson and Delilah tale, uh, pixie style. Again, loud or quiet, that's it, as uh, uh, Black Francis said at one point. Hushed choruses, roaring verses, uh, and that's a great song. So when we talk about Doolittle, look, I'm not, I'm not going to disparage this album at all. Um, I mean, we're talking like, like uh, Kate Upton with a pimple type type of uh, criticism <laughs> here. But uh, when Gil Norton recorded it, as soon as he was done, he he said, "I knew when I finished it actually that it was a bit of a rock and roll classic." So I think he knew what he had on his hands here. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Wave of Mutilation, which I think is. The version that ended up on Doolittle is vastly inferior to a version that ends up on the B-sides, which is the, quote, UK surf version, which is slower. It's more, um, I would say it's more thoughtful. It's just, you know, it lingers a little bit longer, especially given the subject matter about you know, words, Japanese businessmen uh, sending themselves off mm -hmm. to death. Um, so I think that's kind of a it's not a misstep both songs are really good but i think the i think the other version is is far uh uh superior
And then I want to talk a little bit about Here Comes Your Man, which, as you mentioned before, I I do think it's out of place on this album and would be out of place on any of their albums. And I agree that the Purple Tape version is is far uh, uh, superior as well. I don't know where they would have put it, but... And it's a great song. It just it kind of takes me out of the album a little yeah. bit. It's like, what is this? What is this doing here? And um, so it's it's obviously got great songs on it. Here's here would be one of my criticisms of the album. Kind of the B material, I think, is a little bit undercooked. I mean, you have songs like Crackety Jones, La La Love You, Number Thirteen, Baby, There Goes My Gun. Those all those songs seem like more ideas than they do songs. Uh, so I'm not a big fan of, of many of those. I mean, I love the sound, obviously, but uh, when we talk about the next album, uh, I will argue that I think some of the B material on there is, is far uh, better than it was on Doolittle. And this I'll is... Say, oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Actually, no, no. You keep going, Christian. Well, after Doolittle, this is when kind of the band really started to, to fray. They, they actually started supporting The Cure on an arena tour uh, the first show, I believe, was in Giant Stadium. So, I mean, think about the the band that starts in 1986, and here they are, like barely two years, you know, three years later, and then they're suddenly playing arena tours. This was a band that at no point really had to like, you know, pay their dues to get where they were, and that is in large part just because how great they were. The one thing I will say before we leave Doolittle is that Wave of Mutilation. I know you really love that UK surf version. It's a nice, quietly contemplative version. It's a slow ballad played with these very pingy, echoey guitars. But nothing really beats the segue. God, the segue from Tame. Tame is shrieking at you. Black Francis saying, Tame. And then boom. And then second later, boom. And this epic song, again, about nothing you would expect about you know, people committing suicide, about you know Japanese businessmen defending their, their blemished honor by removing themselves and their families from the earth. What a bizarre theme for a song. Just flows right out of it. And the first – I would argue that the reputation of Doolittle – has in large part been made on the backs of those first three songs.
baser, into tame, mm -hmm. into wave of mutilation. You really cannot beat a three-song sequence like that uh, in any era, much less the late 80s, or the early 90s era. That is so rousing and such a, a, a wonderful juxtaposition of like, you know, terrifyingly loud to anthemic and curiously uplifting given the subject matter. That's why I'll always prefer the rock version, the album version of Wave of Mutilation over that B-side one. And that leads us to the uh, the follow-up, the third full-length album, and this is one where um, opinions vary uh, on this show. Bossa Nova, 1990, and uh, I don't know, who, who wants to start here? Because we, we run, I think, a gamut here from really liking it to not liking it all that much. Well, Bossa Nova is when the band really started to fray. They were hardly in the uh, in the studio at all together. Uh, it was it was the Doolittle tour actually when they were touring in Europe. There was there was an event. Um, they were doing a show in Stuttgart, and I guess Kim Deal was ten minutes late to the show. Uh, Charles Thompson was really upset with her. Ended up either throwing a guitar or kicking a guitar at her, <laughs> uh, and they had to be separated. So that's uh, that's really when kind of you know, the band started to split. So the rest of the band left for uh, L.A. to go record Bossa Nova. She stayed back and recorded uh, the, the first Breeders album, Pod, with Steve Albini. So she was at that point already kind of off uh, doing her own thing. Um, so, so Bossa Nova was essentially uh, recorded without her there in large part. Um, and they did write the album in in the studio so this was mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the stuff usually it's a death knell for a band when you when they say they were writing an album in the studio <laughs> <laughs> that's usually a bad sign well frank uh, uh, frank black black francis charles chaz said he, the lyrics to this album he wrote on napkins five minutes before he had to deliver them that's just how it went right and it was it was kind of during this time where he was starting to uh he had some fascination with uh with space and with uh flying saucers and things uh which which you'll see on the the album cover um but yeah that's uh th this is really kind of where the band started to separate and where where Jeff is going to start to see uh you know some of the material that he might not think is 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 as good the joke i make about um the difference between the first half of the pixies career and the second half of the pixies career is that the key to unlocking and understanding what um, Black Francis is on about lyrically for the first part of the Pixies career is uh, the Old Testament and David Lynch. The key to unlocking what he's on about in the second half of their career is Coast to Coast AM with George <laughs> Murray. <laughs> you, you, you know, that goofy late night conspiracy theory show where people talk yes. about their their encounters with UFOs and aliens, and, <laughs> you know, chemtrails and things like that. Because, yes, it, it is at this point that he, he starts dealing with all sorts of right. very, you know, weird. I almost feel like the Illuminati and the uh, Roswell aliens are right. We're leaving line four open for the undead tonight. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah, this is uh, very much along those lines and you know lyrically i actually don't think it harms it i think that you know those sorts of themes are fun and weird and as i said esoteric disarmingly strange that's not my problem with it my problem with it is twofold which is that i think the songwriting isn't there and i think the production is significantly weaker drum sounds something i always focus on something i really care about in music um the drum sounds 
on Come On Pilgrim and on Surfer Rosa and on Doolittle are very clean, loud, aggressive. I think, you know, Albini crystallized it, and I think Gil Norton probably didn't feel like he wanted to stray too far from the direct you know, percussive attack on Doolittle. But once you get into Bossa Nova, and then even worse on Trompe Le Monde, I start hearing these very sort of processed, mm-hmm. you know, drained, you know, masked unfortunately feels like a product of the commercial era Mm -hmm. drum sounds on the record and i just think to myself you're hiding the potential quality of so much of this music uh to the point where there's one song literally i mean this boss nova is not a bad album there are good songs on it there are songs that i do like I, i i like for example down to the well Tellingly, that's an old song that they revived for the album. Dig for Fire is okay. I like that little very brief Allison. It kind of mm-hmm. feels like half a song, but I like that. It's a song that you would have found on the back half of Surfer Rosa. But the only one that really sings to me is Valuria. Valuria is the best song that Black Francis wrote, I think, in his entire career, actually, if you're going to if I'm going to be blunt here, after Doolittle. That song develops itself. It goes through all these chord changes, and its chorus is so lopingly strange, and it, 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 it rolls from change to change to change, and it seems to circle back upon itself like, a, like an Ouroboros, like a snake eating its tail. You know, my Valoria, my Valoria, even I adore you, my Valoria. It works so wonderfully with the music of the song that I wonder to myself, how is it that he put it all together for that one piece and then seemed to leave it all behind for so much of the rest of that record? Let me jump in quickly because Christian's going to tell us that we're all wrong in a moment. Uh, I, I, I really echo Jeff's points on the production here. Same producer is Gil Norton again, but I, I think the choices on this album really torpedo some of the efforts. And as Jeff said, I'm a stickler for drums and drum sound, and I think it's pretty horrific, mostly most of the way through Balsadova. The drums sound awful yeah. on a yeah. pretty decent song like Is She Weird? The drums sound terrible. The drums sound bad on Down to the Well. The drums sound bad all over the place. Um, everything sounds a little more mechanical, a little more constrained on this album. I don't like the way the drums are mic'd either. It sounds like they're mic'd just miles away. And again, compare the way the drums sound on Boss It Over to the way the drums sound on Surfer Rosa, which Albini produced. And it's night and day. And, and, and the Surfer Rosa stuff is so much better the way it sounds. Clearly, it's harmed by the lack of Kim Deal's input here. Uh, she's so important to the way the band sounds, both in terms of her bass playing, uh, any contribution she's made songwriting-wise, and, and, and those you know backing vocals, which are largely missing from Bossa Nova, too. There are some things I like. I, I'm a sucker for surf rock, too. 
uh, the opening track, Cecilia Ann, Surf Tones tune, I like quite a bit. And actually, the next song, too, rock music, pretty savage, fiery tune. Uh, and actually, the drums sound okay there. Uh, it sounds a little raw, much like uh, Surfer River. is great, as Jeff already mentioned. And later in the album, um, Havelina is a pretty song. You don't say too many Pixie songs are pretty, I think, but that's a yeah. pretty song. It kind of sounds a little bit like, or at least the, the vibe is kind of a where is my mind kind of vibe. But it's a pretty song. Other than that, I you know I think the songwriting is 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 weaker than the past albums, and I think the production really kills what could have been some stronger uh, some stronger songs. The production doesn't bother me as much, I guess. Um, it, it's certainly different. It went from, you know, kind of cutesy on Doolittle to more big and powerful on on Bossa Nova, uh, I think. And I just think songs one through six are the best six song run of Pixie songs on a- any album. And I know that's going to give people an aneurysm, but <laughs> Cecilia Ann through Anna, uh, I think is just, those are just six monster songs. And I think the B material is really good as well. Like Down to the Well, The Happening, Blown Away. I just think those are really good songs. almost a matter of taste between you know Doolittle which I think has higher highs but I think uh, Bossa Nova is just more consistent the thing that I will concede of course is there's very little Kim uh, on this album I mean she just shows up she's basically like you know vocal paprika that they just kind of sprinkle in <laughs> uh, every now and then because you know she was pretty much estranged from the band at that point so that's definitely a downer there but uh, I, I just think you know, it, it's more of a, a consistent album uh, than Doolittle, uh, and uh, you'll—I'll back that up later when we make our picks. <laughs> <laughs> Political beats uh, here: Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, Christian Schneider. Follow him on Twitter at Schneider underscore CM. Political con- or, uh, columnist for USA Today and the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Also, previous contributor, periodic contributor to National Review and the Weekly Standard as well. Talking about Pixies, and we reach the end of uh, of their original run of of, of albums, nineteen ninety one. So we're working on you know one album a year basically, and at a time in nineteen ninety one when their sound might fit a little better into what was being played on on radio at the time. They release, uh, uh, my French is bad, Trompe la Monde? Close enough. Um, which basically <laughs> Come on now. I just Trump 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 you knew it. You knew it. You're being silly. <laughs> no, I don't. I would just say Trompe la Monde. 
Trump Lamont. That's because I'm a, okay. I'm a filthy American. By the way, that that is correct. It's Trump Lamont. So there we <laughs> go. Is, it's not that hard. Um, basically, a Frank Black Black Francis solo album in all but name. And I I must say I love Jeff's explanation of the, the key the the George Nori coast to coast. It plays out even more here as a very much a science fiction kind of fascination. Planet of Sound. Uh, you know, you can take lyrics, especially his lyrics, in some different ways. But you know, to me, it's it's it's, a, it's an alien visiting Earth, and even the, the way the vocals are are you know it has the have the effects on it that makes it sound very bubbly and and foreign and perhaps not of this Earth. But I do like the song. It's got an intense guitar solo. It's muscular, uh, muscular sound to it, and uh, kind of a a big, almost arena rock uh, riff, big riff in the chorus to kind of kind of push things through. UMass uh, is a song that was written, or the riff was written long ago, and they, they bring it for a song here. There's a couple of, of incidents here where they, they almost take some shots at their fans, or at least uh, college students, which which uh, UMass does, you know, the it's educational uh, repeating lyric in there. But, you know, <laughs> lampooning the scholarly ambitions and, and even the, you know, rednecks, they get us pissed, stupid stuff, it makes us shout, um... You know, that, that sort of college mentality in many ways. It's got this cowbell backbeat that is pretty neat. And I do like that riff, which is kind of re- not recycled, but used from something long ago. Uh, and, of course, UMass is where half the band at least went to college part-time or didn't graduate, but went for some time. So I like UMass quite a bit. We got ideas to us that's Subaculture, which is one from the purple tape that's been resurrected for this album, kind of similar themes to UMass, I like as well. I think this is a an improvement from from Bossa Nova. Uh, the previous album doesn't come close to reaching the highs of the first two albums, of course. And uh, one song that I'll also point out is, is Head On, the Jesus and Mary Chain cover. Faster the pace. best song on the album. Yeah, I think it's about opinion. half it as the first, long. First as one they released, too, and there was a, a lot of... Uh, angst about that rele- releasing the first song as a you know a, a cover song, but yeah. they were smart. They, they knew it was the best, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, you were going to say Scott? No, I, I think it probably is the best song of the album. I, I, I like UMass quite a bit too, but uh, you can hear again so much of the uh, Pixies' work is echoed in these albums that would come out the next two three years. I, I hear a lot of Foo Fighters in the way they record uh, head on uh, on this album. So. You know, again, an improvement from the one before, not reaching previous highs. It's a decent way to end, uh, I guess, the first incarnation of the band. I'm going to tell you this. In terms of cosmic ironies, it's hard to beat the fact that uh, Trump Lemon was released on September 23rd, 1991. And then on September 24th, 1991, Nirvana released Nevermind, which is, as we all know, the 
titular beginning of the grunge revolution where all of the ideas that Pixies brought to the table, especially in terms of those first three releases, became commercially viable with Nirvana, mm-hmm. with stuff like Smells Like Teen Spirit and, you know, In Bloom, Come As You Are and all of these things. That was the moment where their sound, which was ahead of its time, became of its time. And of course, this is the last album of Pixie's career. This is where it all falls apart for them. And it's funny to hear the difference between these two records because on Trump Lamont, they, they don't sound like Nirvana on Nevermind anymore. Nirvana is sounding like Surfer Rosa. Right. Sounds like Doolittle. Right. It doesn't sound like Trump Lamont. Trauma Lamont is an album that I am, uh, you know, again, continually disappointed with. Every, it's, uh, again, third time now, third time I've referenced Talking Heads. I always go back to their late career albums and listen to them again and hope that I'll find something in them that I hadn't heard before and something will come back to me that I had missed. Same thing happens to me with Pixies. I, I listen to Bossa Nova and I listen to Trump Lamont and I think to myself, well, come on, this was a great band. Surely there's stuff here that's going to, that, that I will have neglected and it's going to jump out at, at me and it really never has the ones that i will say do stick out to me are the ones that i think kind of always stood out to me as being their best on this record as i just said head on by far the best song on this album the fact that it's a cover i don't think should be taken as you know an insult or mm-hmm. i'm damning them with fame praise that's a really i i don't know how many people here are familiar with the original jesus and mary chain version of head on this is an improvement a vast improvement over that song i like the original song too but this is a real upgrade they did something really fun with it and they really um brought out the hook in it uh that i think had been suppressed on the original version i'm impressed with that I think Alec Eiffel is a pretty fun little you know, bit of fire on the early part of the record. And the other one that I like is Letter to Memphis, um, which I have no idea what Letter to Memphis is actually about. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, trying to get to you uh, is the only thing that ever sticks out to me lyrically from it. But I think that it's a really nice little instrumental track. But I'm talking about an album that has 15 songs and there's only three, maybe four if I include Subculture, which Mm -hmm. is, again, from the beginning of their career, just repurposed, uh, that really jump out to me. And so it doesn't shock me at all that this was the end for the band. I think clearly they had enough of each other. And I don't think the musical inspiration was really up to par at this point anymore. Yeah, I mean, the, the criticism that uh, people have of the album was uh, that this is essentially the first Frank Black album um, because the other people were just kind of bit players at that point. You know, Kim Deal was was uh, almost off on her own then. Um, and so they they say that this is, you know, Charles kind of cleaning out his closet. He's got a bunch of these old songs. He's got UMass was old, Planet of Sound was old, Subaculture was old. Um, and then, you know, they release a... a 
a uh, cover song as the first song on the album. Um, I, I still like it. I mean, I I think there maybe there's a difference between being there when the when the albums come out and right. having to wait a year for another Pixies album to come out and then it comes out and then you listen to it nonstop rather than kind of like if somebody today were to go back and listen to the Pixies and immediately you'd have these five albums and you'd say, well, maybe I I won't listen to this one because Surfer Rosa is so good. Um, Because at the time, you know, when you're so thirsty for for something to come out, you just listen to it over and over. And that's, I mean, I just listened to, to this song to this uh, album to death i had a guy in uh in my house who loves umass and he'd just run into my room and scream oh kiss my ass <laughs> like really loud <laughs> and uh, so that's the, the thing that i associate with that song um so i i do like uh, trump lemon um and you were right right after that was kind of when nirvana broke but they just couldn't hold together there to, to support trump lemon they went on this disastrous tour with u2 yeah. where they were they were supporting u2 um they had 30- which, which by the way is an indication of how respected they were mm-hmm. by all these other bands i mean u2 asked them to do it it wasn't just right. like you know the corporate powers that be behind the scenes got together no like bono and the edge like we want the pixies Right, it was and, 33 dates of sold out arenas and they were paid and this is not a this is, I'm not misstating this they were paid $750 per show <laughs> <laughs> to to play sold out stadiums for for U2 and you know there was some uh consternation about the fact that there was like on the dressing rooms they had the words support act like like U2 couldn't even care. Uh they did go to U2 at some point and Bono was like, "Well, okay, yeah, we'll we'll actually put your name on the door." Um <laughs> but uh yeah, so th- that that's really what uh, what what killed the band and then of course there's a a fa- another famous story about where uh, Charles Thompson essentially just sends a fax to the other members of the band or, or to his agent and essentially says, "I'm I'm out." And they they find out that's how they find out that the band is over. Um, and you're right. They, the band ended in 92 and they would have cracked that ceiling that Nirvana and Pearl Jam and all those other bands, uh, would have cracked and they would, they would have been huge, but they just, they could not stand each other anymore <laughs> uh, for, for any multitude of reasons. I also think that it isn't just that they couldn't stand each other. It's that the, you can only go down to the well, so to speak, so many times before the well dries up. And I do believe that the well had dried up. And I guess, you know, the way I we maybe should end this is by pointing out that, you know, decades later, the band finally got back together first in 2000, I think 2005, for like a one-off single, Bam Thwok. Uh, Kim Deal was still in the band. Uh, they did a little reunion tour. They played Do Little Live, track for track. You know, you know one of these sort of reunion things. It, I don't begrudge them that because I figure, given the fact that they never made much money when in their heyday, mm-hmm. they went on to be so critically praised. They've got a right to try to get a little little money for once. So fine, do that. Uh, but then Deal, I think, finally said, "I've had it up to here with had it up to here with you, Charles." And she left. And then they've released two albums since then, neither of which I've listened to more than once or have very much positive to say about uh does anybody have something else to add about those last two uh pixies albums quote unquote pixies albums i i have nothing to add <laughs> i mean i've i've done the same thing i've listened to them once and and 
you know, they didn't strike me as, as being particularly good. So uh, I'd, I'd like to just kind of uh, pretend that the, the first breakup was, was the end. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I don't, have, I don't have much, I don't have anything to add on the, on the, on the uh, albums. I will mention that... You're, you're uh, not going to be naming Indie Cindy as your, no, one of your top two albums? I will not. <laughs> will not be. I did want to mention that during the, I think, late 90s, um, of course, record labels kept repackaging stuff. There is a, a complete B-Sides uh, release that is worth a listen. Uh, there's a couple of live things and some unreleased tracks, of course, and then the, the B-Sides, too. There's yeah, and then, then that's where you're going to find that wave of mutilation yes. that Christian was talking about. Too. Right. Also, yep. the second version of River Euphrates that I mentioned, mm-hmm. and uh, another version of Build High, which was from the uh, original uh, Purple Tapes and, and never saw a proper release on any of the future albums uh, until the B-Sides right. uh, 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 came out. And the other one I like quite a bit is a Neil Young cover that Kim Deal takes vocals on called uh, I've Been Waiting For You. I think that that's the best track on that B-Sides album. And if you're looking to be a uh, uh, Pixies completist, well, there it is. I also think the B-Side album is probably better than either of the two, you know, new, recent, uh, official albums. Oh, I thought okay. you were going to say but better than Bossa Nova and Trump Lamont. No, I was gonna... no, no, I wouldn't go that far. I might. <laughs> I might do that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've been waiting for you was actually the B-Side of Valuria, which makes that um, disc, that little disc, if you buy it, the Valuria CD single, everything you need from the Bossa Nova era. The other thing I'll, by the way, point out is that uh, along archival reissues, they also did a BBC Sessions that is really worth your time as well. It's not the complete BBC sessions. Uh, they left off about, I don't know, a third, maybe, uh, 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 you know, little, little, maybe, yeah, about that many of the sessions that they recorded didn't make it onto this record. So they curated it, but they did a really good job of picking the best, the weirdest, the strangest, and the most worthy stuff that the Pixies did when they went to the United Kingdom, where they were treated uh, with much greater respect, commercially certainly, uh, than they had ever received in America in in their heyday. Really worth picking out that material and buying it. It's it's uh, you know it's thirty five minutes long, so they could have doubled the length of it if they'd wished to. They chose to pick only the things they felt were the most worthy, and every choice is worth it. It's a really great BBC Sessions disc. There's an entire subgenre of bands releasing their Peel Sessions and on these devoted releases. Mm-hmm. This is one of the better ones, in my opinion. I would recommend uh, B-Sides mostly for Into the White, which I think is a great song. Uh, and then just as a curiosity, there's a song called Make Believe, which is sung sung by David Lovering, who you yeah. will find sounds a great bit like uh, Evan Dando when he sings. Sure does, um, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's a song about his favorite American pop star of the time, Debbie Gibson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the song is, is, the lyric is, Make Believe You're Debbie G. Uh, so make sure you catch that. <laughs> a, yeah, I mean, this is a, band, this a terrible is a song, but uh, it's kind of a kind of an oddity. This is a band that had a sense of humor. They yep. actually they yep. were capable of making jokes and laughing at themselves. They just hid it away extremely carefully. 
I would argue the best B sides album uh, for the for Pixies uh, would be the the two the first two Breeders albums, which Kim Deal you know <laughs> wrote all these songs essentially for the Pixies, but they wouldn't allow her to, to perform her. So right. uh, Pod and Last Splash are both outstanding albums. So I would yes. definitely recommend checking those out. Yeah, those are both pretty good. I'm really not a Breeders fan beyond those two, but right. those are two pretty great albums. They just released a new one this year with the original mm-hmm. lineup, which I had read the review said it was excellent. I have not heard it yet, but uh, but they are, uh, I guess, back in original yeah, form. All, all nerve. I I picked it up myself, but I know I have to. It's kind of like in my back pocket. It's like it's something to buy. Yeah. All right, we have uh, reached that portion of the show where we tell you, the uh, devoted Political Beats listener, our two recommendations for albums that you should own from Pixies and five key songs you should hear from throughout their career. As always, we open things up to our guest first, Christian Schneider, political columnist for USA Today and the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Read at National Review and Weekly Standard occasionally. The floor is yours. Okay, the, the two albums that I picked are, as from listening to this entire podcast, as I'm sure everybody is, uh, Surfer Rosa, which of course is one of the greatest uh, albums of all time. And uh, I picked Bossa Nova uh, for reasons previously stated. Uh, the five songs are uh, Holiday Song, uh, Nimrod's Son, which are actually back-to-back on uh, Come On Pilgrim. I picked uh, Gigantic off, off uh, Surfer Rosa. Uh, Wave of Mutilation, except the UK surf version. This is <laughs> this is where I get nerdy. And uh, I picked Alec Eiffel off of uh, Trompe Le Mans, and we didn't discuss that song a whole lot, but I just love the way that kind of in the middle of the song it just switches songs. I have a, I have a fetish for songs that change into another song, um, uh, Paranoid Android style. So uh, I, I really like kind of that direction uh, that he went on uh, Trompe Le Mans. Those are my picks. Uh, for my two albums, uh, Surfer Rosa, absolutely. And uh, I, I think that is the height of the Pixies output. And uh, went back and forth between Come On Pilgrim and Doolittle. I settled on Doolittle. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a it's a full length. I think the highs are perhaps a little higher. Gil Norton's production there actually helps the songs. I'll say Surfer Rosa and, and Doolittle. The songs themselves... Uh, from Come On Pilgrim, I've Been Tired. Jeff went through this uh, pretty specifically uh, previously in the show. It's a great song. The music is great. The lyrics are funny. <laughs> funny, that, you know, not, it doesn't distract from the song, I should say, but but they're, it's a great set of lyrics, and uh, I've Been Tired is my favorite from, from Come On Pilgrim. From Surfer, uh, Surfer Rosa, boy, Bone Machine is absolutely on my list. I love the way that song starts. I love the drum, drum sound. I love the, the chorus. With the two voices intertwined, uh, Bone Machine for sure. Cactus from later on in the album uh, is also on the list. I spoke about that one earlier. And then I think my last two are both going to be from from Doolittle uh, Debaser. 
leadoff track uh, is a tremendous song. And then later on, I had mentioned uh, Gouge Away. Again, the loud, quiet, loud dynamic. Um, I think that's an, an excellent example of how that worked for Pixies through their career. So Gouge Away, the final song of my five. Jeff, to you. If I were a cheater, I would recommend that you get that version of Surfer Rosa that includes the Come On Pilgrim EP as a set of bonus tracks. <laughs> no, no. I know, I know, but I'd want to. By the way, you can find that. I think it's out of print, but you know, go on to Amazon or you know, you know, check out your your favorite used uh, CD store. They may have it. Damn, that 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 solves this problem for me, uh, because it really does come down to "Come On Pilgrim" from Rosa and "Do Little for Me." So I think that choices that I would make are "Come On Pilgrim," the original EP, and "Do Little." I think the former "Come On Pilgrim" is as perfect a distillation of everything Pixies ever wanted to do or wanted to be, and the brevity. I'm just such a huge fan of 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 artistic works that say their piece. Get out of town. Don't linger too long, and don't really waste a single second of your time. Surfer Rosa is a fantastic album for all the reasons that we've said already on this show. So please don't take this to mean that I think it's somehow lesser. I just think Come On Pilgrim is is condensed and perfect. Uh, and of course, Do Little, uh, their their last great album in my opinion, and an album that you know finds them with a somewhat more harnessed approach in the studio. But that doesn't take any way, anything away from the, the fury and the wildness of what their music was and what they were able to bring to the table. And the reason, really, that they're, they're cited as one of the most influential bands of the era. My five songs. Uh, first one would be Levitate Me. Last song on Come On Pilgrim. One of the uh, best songs that they ever recorded. And also proof that these guys had really great pop hooks. Mm -hmm. They weren't entirely about just you know, freaking you out and flipping the minds of the squares and throwing esoteric references in your face, although they do it on that song. Uh, this is a beautiful pop song and a beautiful rock song, and it's anthemic in a way the Pixies were rarely willing to be, I think sometimes because uh, Black Francis feared to be anthemic, because he feared that that was not what their brand was supposed to be, that would be somehow selling out the values that they had brought to this, you know, brought to the the brought to the scene uh, and, and made them singular as pixies. The second song I'd choose is the alternate version of Here Comes Your Man. And this is a tough one. This is, you know, uh, Christian talked about how recommending the B-side version of Wave of Mutilation was nerdy. Well, this one you can't find anywhere unless you really buy like the bootlegs or the obscure import releases. The alternate version of Here Comes Your Man, it is available on YouTube and I probably will throw it into our show notes just to make sure that you can find it. I think is as purely pop as they ever got and is an interesting view into a road not taken by the band. Clearly, they felt the need to change it and to weird it up and adulterate it at least somewhat by the time it came for them to record it for Doolittle because they didn't want to be caught recording something that was just so straight ahead, hummable and listenable. But it is a great song. And the lyrics, again, are, are as obscure as they get about a nuclear holocaust. If you can prize that from the lyrics, then you're a better man than I because I've never been able to figure out why that's supposed to be about that. Third song I'll, I'll pick is from surfer rosa it's break my body this is the song that sold me on the pixies first time i heard it put that album on bone machine was pretty striking but very weird uh and then break my body came on and i had never heard anything quite like that 
is a torrential fury of guitar, screeching vocals from both Black Francis and then Kim Deal on harmonies in the background, and with a lyrical theme that was simultaneously both disturbing and incredibly compelling. The third one is River Euphrates. Talked about this one during the show. Feels like you've diving, you're diving down deep into the well of souls, and you're in ancient Egypt with uh, you know spirits of old gods floating around you as you 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 take your way through the river towards the sea to whatever end. Who knows? Very very compelling piece of music. And then the last song I'll choose is uh, one from Doolittle that you could pick a lot of songs from Doolittle, but the one that I will choose is Tame. Because I think Tame kind of sums up everything that made Pixies so influential throughout their their afterlife, through all the bands that would subsequently listen to them and start bands of their own, all the kids that would hear these songs and say, well, I, I want to do something. What do I want to do? They were inspired by the dynamics that you hear in a song like Tame, which is simultaneously both aggressive and wildly uncommercial and yet an earworm that you will, once you hear it, never quite be able to forget and that will, will edge its way into your brain at random times for the rest of your life because it's that good a song that says everything it needs to say in two minutes ends by shrieking directly into your ears and yet you want to hear it again the second that it's done There we go. The Political Beats look at Pixies. We thank our guest on this episode, Christian Schneider. Find him on Twitter at Schneider underscore CM. He's a political columnist, USA Today, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and a periodic contributor to National Review and Weekly Standard. Also find him as a regular guest on Will's Band of the Week, a weekly podcast about current independent and alternative albums. Christian, thank you so much for joining hey, us thank, on the thank podcast. Thank you great font of knowledge on uh, <laughs> on pixies uh jeff at esoteric city on twitter another fine episode if i do say so myself onward and upward my friend we'll do it again uh next week remember you can find us uh on twitter at political underscore beats also subscribe to our feed for new episodes itunes google play stitcher or tune in or right there on nationalreview.com listen share enjoy leave reviews as well for our episodes my name's Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.